All right, well, welcome everybody. Uh, a couple of you still on working your way in. As you come in, there were two note sheets, one for tonight and then uh, one for a recommended reading list. I'll just skim through that. I'm, there's a lot of information on there, so I won't uh, walk through all of that, but I'll just hit a couple highlights on that. So uh, we made it. This is week four. Of course, we've now uh, completely uh, taken care of every single topic we could possibly talk about within biblical gender. There really is nothing left. <laughs> so the plan for tonight is, um, in just a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we are going to uh, do just a brief review of some key uh, kind of big picture ideas that I'll uh, try to frame for us. I'll hit a couple of the um, kind of uh, uh, more kind of fringe concepts within the transgender uh, discussion that we haven't hit, that haven't really fit into anything neatly. Um, and then there's going to be a whole lot of opportunity for questions. So uh, hopefully you have questions. Um, if you uh, are willing to ask those questions uh, on the microphone, um, that will be recorded. Um, your name won't be tied to them, but your voice will be tied to them. And so if you're comfortable with that, um, you're welcome to talk into the microphone. That will help us to be able to kind of uh, have a little bit more of a conversation. But if you're not comfortable with that, you are still welcome to uh, text to that number, and I will get those as well. And I had a few already submitted, so uh, I'll be working through those as well. So that's the plan. Um, so let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Jesus, our, uh, our deep desire is for each one of us to be people who are pursuing after you, that we would become more like you and we would live as you would live in the world around us. And um, that can be a really complicated thing as it relates to all kinds of issues, but uh, particularly as it relates to uh, this specific issue. And so God, would you uh, give us grace to hear your spirit, to know, as we've prayed each week, uh, the balance between grace and truth. Help us to know how to step into this conversation. Um, and the larger world, the culture that's moving very quickly around us, uh, help us know how to uh, interact with that. God, as I uh, often do, um, but feel especially deeply tonight, I pray that you would guard my words, that they would come from your spirit alone, not from my flesh, that the words that come from my flesh would be forgotten, but the words that come from your spirit would be the things that remain with us as we go out from here uh, and engage a broken and needy world around us. God, um, would you help us to be people who uh, remember very specifically the things that you are saying and you are doing? And so God, lead us, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So um, we are going to start with review of some core things. So uh, they're listed there for you, I think. Oh, before we get there, let me just real quickly hit the recommended reading list. I'll do that now, and then we won't have to come back to it. So um, uh, it's, uh, it, it's got a kind of a run through of each of the books, so I'm not going to read through all of that. I just want to highlight a couple things here. Embody, that first book uh, by Preston Sprinkle, is, um, I, I actually feel like it's a bit um, too, uh, is too compassionate a thing? That's probably too, that's probably the wrong word. Um, it, it leans a little too far into a uh, normalizing of transgenderism uh, further than I would be comfortable with. However, I would say for most Christians who are wrestling with this issue from a 
Um, I've never met a transgender person, and I don't really have a lot of experience with this. That is the single book I would recommend. It's full of stories. Um, it puts a lot of names and faces and ideas to uh, stories to a lot of these things. And uh, he does a really, really excellent job with that. So while I don't fully agree with all of his conclusions, I, I think it's uh, for where the church typically is. If you kind of put yourself in the, like, I've come to church for a while, I've followed Jesus for a while, I don't really know a ton about this stuff, um, and I'd like to get a sense of it. It's an incredibly well-researched book, and it has lots and lots of pastorally-oriented stories, which I think are really, really helpful in trying to walk through this. Uh, one of those things that we constantly, I, I'm constantly trying to do is to put, um, put flesh on this, to not have it be an issue, but have it to be, be people. These are, uh, these are all people that we're talking about, and uh, Sprinkle does a great job with that. So um, that is that one. Um, the rest of them you can kind of uh, look through and see there. Um, I, I put Renovation of the Heart, which is a Dallas Willard book, on there. Um, the, the reason is, uh, I note in there, Willard probably didn't even know what transgenderism was when he died, although he lived in Southern California, so it might have gotten there by 2013. Um, the, the, the reason it's on there is that this is the clearest work of Willard on the change process. And one of the things I stated, um, very <laughs> in this room it's not controversial, but in a lot of places as it goes out onto the interweb, it's very controversial. My, my perspective on transgender is not that it should be battled, not that we should coddle it, not that we should celebrate it, those were the things that we talked about through those frames, but that it should be transformed, that there's actually a work of Jesus that changes that thing that's uh, within us that feels that we'd label gender dysphoric. And if change is gonna happen, there has to be a process that leads to change. Willard does, I, I think, as good of a job as anybody as walking through what that process of change is. So that's not on there as a transgender resource, that's on there as a change transformation resource. How does, how does transformation work? Um, the last one I'll call out is uh, the best thing that's out there to understand what's happening broadly is the rise and triumph of the modern self. We'll uh, relook at a quote that we looked at last week in just a little bit. Uh, Truman's work is uh, really profound in understanding what's going on in the world. He comes from a very strongly, um, uh, uh, he, he, he would like to see a very activist movement oppose the LGBTQ lobby. So he's definitely coming from a very strong conservative perspective as, a, as it comes from a political perspective. So you should be aware of that as you dig into it. But it's incredibly well uh, laid out and um, he kind of lays out the way the philosophy has shifted over time. Um, it's, it's a dense book, so I'm not gonna kid you. You're gonna have to work your way. It's real work to read through it, but it's really, it's, uh, of everything on there, if you wanna understand what's happening culturally, that's the thing to read. If you wanna understand the face and the people behind it, uh, the Sprinkle book embodied is the thing to read. So there's more there, but you can get a sense of those. So. Um, I just want to take a couple minutes to try to uh, summarize most of where we've been. I want to try to hit the big points that we've tried to come out with. Um, obviously, there's been a ton of other stuff. But um, I, we, we start out by saying humanity is created in two genders in order to display the glory of God. So the goal is not difference. The goal is not stereotype. The goal is not even role primarily, although uh, the, the comp complementarity of the way that God has created is a part of the, the creative design. But that the, the ultimate goal is to display the glory of God. So that means that 
Men don't fully display the glory of God on their own, and women don't fully display the glory of God on their own, because remember when Adam was alone with God in the garden, sinless in this beautiful uh, state where they're just having a wonderful conversation, that's when God said it is not good for man to be alone. So there's a, there's a duality to the way that our gendered selves reflect the glory of God, and that's, that, that's the core issue that is underneath all of this. Um, when we start to move away from the, the two genders that God created, we move into an area where we're actually, deal, we're, we're actually pushing against the glory of God. So that to, to, I, I don't wanna unnecessarily weight the conversation, but it's a weighty conversation. So I want you to, to get that from the front end. That's why this is such a big deal. Um, the fall impacted every area of humanity, including genders. We talked about that at the beginning. Um, everything's broken, and everything is in the process of being restored. So we, as image bearers of God, icons who represent God, are in the process of restoration but still have a fallen nature. Uh, that, that position of humility that's moving towards the restoration of God is a vitally important one for us to take. That doesn't mo- move us away from truth, but it should move us into grace as we're engaging some of the difficult conversations that are happening in the world around us. Um, we talked about gender experience being subjective. Uh, we, one of the things we said over the last couple of weeks is if we would go around with a microphone and ask you to describe what it feels like to be a man if you're a man or feels like to be a woman if you're a woman, you, you would all have different answers. We, that, there's not a scientific objective way to define that. And so um, that subjectivity is a key part of this conversation as we try to figure out what's underneath what's happening. Um, there, there's a logical incoherence to the argument that says, I feel like a woman or I feel like a man because I, I feel like me, right? I can't help but feel like me. I may feel like a range of a stereotype that doesn't fit into a cultural stereotype around me, but I can't, I, it's, it's logically incoherent for me to say I feel like an, the opposite gender because nobody can describe what the opposite gender feels like. So it's just a, there's, a, a, there's a, just a pure logical incoherence to that, that argument. Um, we, we talked about the fact, uh, we hit this in, the, in week two, uh, the LGBTQ lobby has pushed very, very quickly change socially and culturally that typically takes decades upon decades to happen. It has moved really, really fast, which is why literally everybody's reeling. The, the doctors are reeling, uh, the medical field's reeling, the teachers are reeling, the pastors are definitely reeling. Like We're all just trying to get our feet under us because it has happened so incredibly quickly. The change that happened within uh, the, the lesbian and gay community over the course of 40 or 50 years has happened literally in four or five years in the transgender uh, world. It's really incredible. And so that, that rapid amount of change is part of why we're wrestling to try to keep up with all this. So if you feel confused, don't worry. Um, lots, lots of people do. Um, just like that lobby has pushed on one side, the other thing that we talked about is the church has, uh, in some cases, in lots of high-profile cases, pushed an unnecessarily narrow stereotype of what masculinity and femininity is, which has not helped the conversation. And so uh, when the church 
uh, divides what God has intended to bring together is the way that I would say that. So God has intended for men and women together to reflect the glory of God. So when there's an unnecessarily narrow way of viewing gender that says only men can and only women can, then you end up dividing men and women and uh, losing the display of the glory of God. Uh, so we need to be, I'm not saying there aren't cases where that should happen or could happen. I think we just need to be really careful when we're doing those kinds of things and how we're doing those kinds of things as we, uh, as we narrow gender to specific roles or specific ways of engaging those roles. Um, so we talked about logical incoherence. Um, the, the, the other piece with that that's important is while uh, it's logically incoherent for someone to say, I feel like the opposite gender because that's a subjective term, it is vitally important for us to remember that something is being felt. And that something that's being felt is being felt really, really deeply. To, to, to express whatever it is that you're feeling as, I feel like I don't belong in my body is a, a, a really deeply significant thing that's being felt. And so whatever it is that's being felt, we need to have uh, pastoral care and compassion. I don't mean pastoral from me. I mean a shepherding care and compassion for people who are feeling that thing very deeply. That doesn't mean that we affirm that they're feeling like the opposite gender because that's logically incoherent. That, that, so there's a, a barrier of truth there. But to recognize something really, really deep is being felt and that deep thing that's being felt needs to be cared for. There needs to be a way that we walk with people who are experiencing this, this thing that they're describing as gender dysphoria or whatever, however they're describing it. Um, and then the last thing, it's vitally important to remember that transgender people are people before they are trans, and so we need to love them first as people. Um, the, the statement I made last week, and I wrote down here, the goal for a trans person is not to cure their gender dysphoria, but for them to encounter the saving love of Jesus. So the, the goal is not, I'm gonna convince you that you're wrong. The goal is not, I'm gonna fix you. The goal is not, this thing that you feel is not what you should be feeling, so I'm gonna convince you to feel something different. The goal is that people would encounter Jesus. That, that, that is separate from a larger political conversation and policies and different things that are being pushed on a, a, an, an impersonal level. But remember, one of the things we talked about early on is the impersonal level, the trans activists are a very, very small minority of a much larger population. Most trans people are not trying to push a policy. Most trans people are just trying to figure out their life. They're trying to figure out what to do. And so that's where the one-to-one -one relationship and the connection comes in as we start to engage people from that perspective. All right, so this week, uh, the goal is to hit some loose ends and to um, uh, get some questions. And I'm sure uh, you're gonna ask easy questions that will be kind to me, so that'd be great. Thank you so much. Um, so I, I wanna hit three big topics that uh, we've kind of danced around over the last couple weeks because they're, they're a bit fringe. Um, but they're important to, uh, to understand, and so I want to walk through them. So the first one is intersex. So we've talked a little bit about the distinction between trans and intersex. Intersex is a birth condition where you have some range of um, either multiple X chromosomes and a Y chromosome, if it is an, uh, an, a, a chromosomal uh, intersex condition, and that chromosomal intersex condition can often, or in some instances, 
emerge as distinct uh, genitalia for either both genders or opposite gender of your birth, your birth sex. So you could have both a penis and a vagina. You could, have, you could have internal female body parts with an external penis or internal male body parts with an external vagina. These are rare conditions, but they're not so rare that it's, it, it's very likely that we all know people who are experiencing these conditions. They're not so rare that you never will meet somebody who is like that. And so that, that intersex condition, while being small, uh, the, the statistics are a little bit um, wonky on it because the, the leading statistic is that 1.7% of people are born with an intersex condition. That's really, really high because basically that, that statistic is saying anybody who has any sort of a chromosomal in a abnormality, um, there would be lots and lots of people, part of that 1.7%, who would go through their entire life not knowing that they're intersex. They would, they would have a birth gender, they would live within that birth gender, they would die within, they would get married, they'd die within the birth gender, they would never ever know that they were chromosomally different in any way. Any of you may have an XXY chromosome in your body or have that replicating in your body, and you just wouldn't know. It, it, so. Lots and lots of times that 1.7% number is way too high. But there is a, a significant number. It's placed somewhere between 0.018% uh, at the low end and almost 1% at the high end of people who have uh, some kind of uh, ambiguous genitalia or uh, mismatched internal reproductive organs. So that's, that's a real number. I mean, that's, uh, that's a number that um, it's, for instance, in a church our size, it's not unlikely that at some point in time there's a baby brought into the nursery that doesn't seem to match, that, that when you're changing a diaper, you're saying, I, I can't tell. I don't really know what's going on here. Um, now, I say that it's, that's likely. Unfortunately, um, it's very unlikely that it would happen because most people who have babies like that will not bring them anywhere in public and they would never show up in a nursery, which is the, one of the challenges that we have to wrestle with. Um, because as a, as a church body, any church body, not just this church body, uh, we want to create a space where it's, uh, the, these are things, something that a, a child or the mother can't do anything about. And so to be able to love and walk with and nurture in the midst of that is, uh, is a real thing. Um, the, for this conversation... Um, here's what's important. There are seven to 10 distinct medical conditions that are described as intersex. Um, they are a blending of two genders, not a third gender. That's what's vitally important. Intersex is often used by the trans lobby to say, see, there's not just two genders, there's a third gender. The vast majority of intersex people, even those who are as like key parts of the intersex movement would say, we don't wanna be used by your lobby. We're not, we, we don't see ourselves as trans people. We, we, we are a unique, uh, we have a unique situation that we have to work our way through, but that doesn't make us trans. And so this idea of intersex doesn't mean by default that there's a third gender. It just means that there's a, a broken world. Um, interestingly, this is the one condition within this entire discussion that Jesus actually spoke to. So. Uh, you, you actually get this in the gospel. So Matthew chapter 19, um, if, you, uh, if you know 
Matthew 19 in your head, you probably know it as uh, where Jesus spoke about divorce, um, and he did speak about divorce in, uh, in Matthew chapter 19. But um, let me, I, I should have looked at this uh, beforehand, let me just look through. Um, so Jesus says this, the disciples uh, say, after he chooses on divorce, this is verse 10, uh, Jesus says, if, if, if such is, or the, the disciples say to him, if such is the case a man, uh, of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom he is given. Now listen to this. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. There is a range of interpretation around that, but the vast majority of commentators would say the first thing Jesus is talking about is an intersex person, someone who has indistinct genitalia and is unable to reproduce. The second person is someone who has been castrated as a part of the uh, typically uh, the governmental order or for some, for some reason has chosen castration. And the third person, a lot of com commentators would say are same-sex attracted people who are choosing celibacy. So they choose to be uh, celibate and Jesus is using the term eunuch, choosing not to use their sexual reproductive organs in order to glorify God for the kingdom of heaven. So um, while the interpretation varies a bit, uh, it is, uh, Jesus is clearly talking about something that's happening from birth, and most everyone would say that's some form of intersex. And what Jesus says when he calls that condition out is that there are, that, that all, the whole range of these people are able to glorify God. And so that's the core, the core of this is that, again, these are real people who have a real condition that we should be walking with and loving and nurturing uh, rather than... Uh, Push, pushing out to the outside, pushing off to the margins. Um, there is some conversation around whether we, it's appropriate to say the intersex condition is a result of the fall or not. Um, if you're going to ask that question, my argument would be that it is, but that um, the, the, the challenge of that is that intersex people then feel like I'm, I'm, uh, my whole condition and identity is sinful, and I would simply say a robust view of sin should say that for all of us. So if we recognize the brokenness, the fallenness of man, we should all feel like that. Like my whole identity is sinful and broken. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's why we need redemption. That's the heart of the gospel. Um, so lots of really difficult pastoral questions that come with this. How do you handle birth announcements? If you have a baby that is uh, indistinct and you don't know, like, is, is that a boy or a girl? What, you don't know. How, how are you going to figure that out? There are, there are real difficult pastoral questions. Again, a very small minority of people, but a real, real situations that we need to be aware of to walk with, not transgender, a different thing. So that's probably enough for that. You can ask questions if you want. Um, pronouns. Okay, here we go. This will be fun. Um, so what do you do in a world where your um, applications and when you're, uh, when you're interacting in a business world, there's a, um, uh, a preferred pronoun slot that everybody's now all of a sudden filling in. Um, first of all, people ask me, am I supposed to fill that in? Like, if, I, if I'm filling out an application, if I write he, him, does that mean that I'm all of a sudden like crazy woke and I'm like in trouble or like, like what, what happens there? And I would, I would simply say, like, you, 
do whatever you want. It's fine. Like you write he, him if you want, or you can leave it blank. Um, if, if I walk in bald and with a beard, they probably know what pronouns to call me if I haven't put anything in. It's fine. So it'll, it'll be okay. Um, the challenge is, what do you do when someone else wants you to refer to them by pronouns that don't make any logical sense to you? So um, I walk up to you and say that I'd like to be referred to as uh, she and her, and you're saying, yeah, that's an interesting beard, she, her. Like, what's going on with that? Like, I, how, how, do you, how do you handle that? Um, and I, I would not say that there is a hard and fast way to handle it. So I'm going to tell you my perspective on it. Um, I... I would not say, I don't, I, I, I'm not sure that you, anybody could say, this is grounded in the scriptures and this is absolutely true, this is the only way to do it. This is what I would say. If Mike comes up to me, and I've never met Mike, and I shake his hand, and he says, hi, my name's Sarah, um, I'm going to look at him, because Mike really looks like a man, and I'm going to say, Sarah's an odd name, but if I just met him, I'm going to call him Sarah, because that's what he told me his name is, and I'm going to call him by the name that he gave me to call him. If he says, I'd like to be referred to, if I say him, and he says, no, I'd really like to be her, in, it, in a conversation with him, if I'm just meeting him, if I was forced to use a pronoun, I would try to use her. I would probably not do it very well, because I have a logical connection that says he looks like a he to me. But I would, I would try to do that. I would... Uh, much more strongly use his name. And if he said his name was Sarah, I would, sorry to pick on you, man. I'm just, you're, you're right in front. What are you going to do? Yeah, that's the way it goes. Um, if, if he said his name is Sarah, I would, I would say Sarah all the time. I would, I would try to avoid using pronouns. And as quickly as I could, I would seek to develop the kind of relationship with him where I would be able to say, so why is that? What, what's, what's happening? What's happening there? Um, and that seems like that's a broad, like that's going to take months or years to, to do. And depending on your relationship, so from a school teacher perspective, that might take a really, really long time to do because your, your conversation doesn't go deep. But in regular conversation with people, to, as you meet people, you can get there relatively quickly because if, if he looks like him and says his name's Sarah and wants to be referred to as she, he, she knows that's weird too. Like, it's okay. So we're going to be able to have a conversation on that relatively quickly. Um, I, you know, one of the things I wrestled with is what, what we, what, if, if Jesus is walking around and Jesus is told by someone that they had preferred pronouns, would Jesus say he, her, or uh, uh, would, would Jesus use an opposite gender pronoun? And, and here's what I came, came up with. I don't know if this, obviously this situation did not happen to him, so I don't know. Here, here's what I think he would do. In my sanctified imagination, I think that Jesus would figure out a, a, a way of referring to that person that would be something like treasure or joy. And he would, he would constantly refer to them by who they are as they're seen by God and he would use a non-gendered way of interacting with him. I don't know if that's true, but in my sanctified imagination, I just picture Jesus doing something subversive like that. That's what he would always do, these subversive things. And I, th I think he probably wouldn't, I, I don't know that I, at least in my flesh, would be wise enough to immediately come up with that and be able to do that. 
but I have thought over the course of these last couple weeks as I've wrestled with some of this stuff, like, I, if I'm put in that situation, that would be my immediate prayer. Jesus, give me a, a way to refer to this person that's not according to the, their birth, sex, or their preferred gender, but is referencing who they are as a treasure, as, as uh, so, someone who's cherished by God. Um, and I would probably, if I was creative enough to come up with that in the moment, say, would it be okay if I just referred to you as cherished by God or as joyful or what, whatever? And I would just refer to them be, because that's what I see in you, something like that. So I don't know. Um, I, I would say um, from a pronoun perspective, I would say um, I typically in that situation just try to avoid pronouns. I, I'm going to be totally honest with you. They, them, with a single person is almost impossible for me. Like, I just, I've, I speak English, and it doesn't work. Like, I can't look at a single person and refer to them in the plural. I know that's the that's preferred way of a non-binary person to be referred to. I understand that. But I just, I cannot get my head around it, so I just use that person's name, preferred chosen name, as much as I possibly can. Because I, I know, and it's not even, a, like, a... It's not a, a moral statement. It's just a, I can't look at a person and refer to them as a plural. It just doesn't work in my head. So, uh, you know, it's just English. English doesn't work that way. So um, that's not hitting all of the details of, uh, of pronouns by any means, but it at least gives kind of a starting point. You're welcome to ask questions. Um, uh, the last thing I want to say is this. We, in all of these conversations, we always have to figure out what's the hill we're willing to die on? You know, what's, the, what's the, the, the line? For me, pronouns are not the line. For me, there's another line. And uh, if I want to have the opportunity to speak into the other line, uh, uh, pronouns for me are not the line. For some of you, that you may say, to me, that's the line. Like, I just, I'm not doing that. And that's fine. For me, um, I'm, I'm going to hopefully get a little further in the conversation before I hit the hill I'm going to die on. There is a hill I'm going to die on, um, but it, that, that wouldn't be the one. Um, the last thing I want to hit is this concept called rapid onset gender dysphoria. Uh, it's, a, it's a very specific form of transgenderism, but it's super important for us to talk through because uh, it is um, statistically happening more and more, and it's, the, it's kind of the worst case scenario for parents because rapid onset gender dysphoria is really difficult to figure out how to deal with as a parent. So definition first, rapid onset gender dysphoria is someone who has not throughout the early formative years of their lives exhibited any kind of gender dysphoria, but then at some point in time in their preteen or early teen years, they have a short period of time, sometimes as short as a couple weeks, uh, sometimes up to a year or two, where they go through a process where suddenly they're deeply gender dysphoric and they deeply believe that they're the wrong gender. And that, that idea of rapid onset happens disproportionately to birth females in a way that is way off the charts. So if you go back to, historically, if you go back to, to transgender statistics, men who felt that they were born in a male body but were women, were three to four to one over women who were in the same condition, historically. So men, three to four times as many men were gender dysphoric as women. 
Now, today, the latest statistics I've seen are four to five times as high women to men. One of the rarest things to find in a, a middle school in uh, America is a girl that feels comfortable being a girl. That's just very, very rare right now. There's all kinds of reasons for that. We talked about some of that in the sexuality class. Um, you can see some of that as you look at the world around you in a, a hypersexualized culture and a specific way that women are made to uh, feel or look, uh, the way that masculinity is portrayed. There's all kinds of reasons. Rapid onset gender dysphoria, the very um, non-politically correct thing to say, but what most most psychologists believe, if you give them truth serum and take them off the record, is that it's, uh, it, it's created by what's called a social contagion. There's something else going on, and the influence of all kinds of other people are creating this movement towards gender dysphoria. So what will almost always happen with rapid onset gender dysphoria is if left alone, talked about not as gender, but as pressing into the person that's going through this. Get, uh, walking with them, engaging them, loving them, trying to figure out what's going on in the rest of their life, and a as best as possible, not talking about gender, trying to kind of avoid the topic of gender and engaging all kinds of other stuff. Typically, over the period of a year or two or three, that person will move out of that because the social contagion is gonna change and they're gonna come back to what they originally felt. That doesn't always happen. It can kind of stick, so to speak. And when it does, that's something that then has to be dealt with. But again, remember, it's, it's, it's logically incoherent to say that that thing that you feel is actually the other gender. You feel something, but you can't, it's logically incoherent to say you feel that because you don't know what the opposite gender feels like. So. Um, you're, they're dealing with something, and that something needs to be dealt with, loved, cared for, nurtured, all, all of those things. Here's where the danger comes in. Rapid onset gender dysphoria, when treated from a secular perspective, will, in our current structure, very quickly lead to hormone blockers, puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and very quickly there can be a transition to, uh, a, a, actually a surgical transition, that parents don't even have to uh, agree to. So if a 13-year-old has rapid onset gender dysphoria and goes to her doctor and has a conversation about the fact that she doesn't think she's a girl, she's a boy, and she's insistent that she is going to transition, parents are, that's private information that parents are not privy to, and that process can happen without parental consent if, the, if all parties are willing to do that. Now, most doctors in a place like York, Pennsylvania, as of right now, will not walk through that process that way. But that is the way the law works. And so that's, that's why it's vitally important for us to get, because if, this is, if these are our children, what we want to be doing is engaging them as quickly as possible uh, on what's underneath this, like what's going on in their heart, where, where are they at, like what, what's happening, to get them to a Christian counselor who can walk them through what's going on underneath, again, w without, um, as much as possible, without engaging the issue of gender, because the issue is not primarily gender. Um, I, I have a link for you in there, I think, I might have put it on, oh, 
Tim's following along. Thank you, Tim. I haven't done anything, and Tim would hit it. Way to go. I love it when Tim's back there. That's great. Um, on your note sheet, there's a, uh, a I, I think it's actually a, a Google, like Google this kind of thing. Um, it's a fascinating video that is really, really helpful. Lucinda actually forwarded it to me uh, a couple months ago. And it's like 20 minutes long, so I don't want to take time to show it uh, today, but it's a girl who experienced rapid onset gender dysphoria, uh, began the transition process uh, all the way through taking lots of testosterone but did not surgically transition, and then kind of came to herself, retransitioned back. She's not a, not a believer, but she's at a Christian conference talking about this journey, and it's fascinating. One of the things that she says that's so profound is like, I was a 17-year-old girl. I, my brain's not even fully developed. Why are my parents, why, is the, why are the adults in the world letting me make these decisions? That's ridiculous. And as voices like that come out, my, my hope and prayer is that some of this will start to equalize a bit. I think part of why we're so far off the deep end culturally is because this happened so quickly. And so a lot of these voices are starting to emerge. I mean, this is a, this is a secular girl who would, uh, she would put herself agnostic at best. She's not uh, as part of, she's not on some moral crusade. She's just saying like, look, like a 17-year-old person should not be making these decisions about their body. Like somebody should be, like I was talking to somebody about this earlier and they said, so wait, a 12-year-old can do that, but you need to have, like somebody needs to sign off if you're gonna get a tattoo if you're under 18. Like that's true, you can actually, um, you can actually surgically change your body, but you can't get a tattoo. Like, it's, it's, it's the world we live in right now. And so things are going, I believe, will equalize over time. But rapid onset gender dysphoria is, um, is really tricky and is something to be aware of. It's not a huge number. Again, not really, really big numbers. But um, wh when it happens, it can be really scary. It can be very disorienting for parents because it's like, where did this come from? Um, and to try to walk through that in a way, again, that tries to get underneath is, is really key. Um, I showed you a quote last week from, uh, from Carl Truman from Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Let me uh, look at it one more time as we kind of wrap up and move to questions. So Truman says, in short, our response to the major issues of our day, particularly those associated with the LGBTQ plus movement and its demands, cannot be isolated from the wider framework of anti-culture in which we live, that should be an E. We cannot blithely accept no-fault divorce, for example, and then complain that Obergefell redefined marriage. The ba basic redefinition of marriage did not take place in 2015, but when Governor Ronald Reagan signed the no-fault divorce into law in California in 1970. So I want to be clear about a couple things. Uh, what, I'm, what Truman's saying, and what I'm saying, is not that any specific entity failed. What, uh, what Truman's saying, and what I'm saying, is that the culture has shifted in all kinds of ways, and we as the, the church have been a part of that shift in culture and at times celebrated that shift in culture. There's, a, a, I'm certain, lots of people at York Alliance and tons of people in churches all over York County who have experienced no-fault divorces. And that's clearly not what the Bible teaches about marriage. And if that's where you're at, I'm not trying to be critical of that. I'm just saying, like, that's just a, that's just a reality of the way that we have entered into a redefinition of marriage. Marriage is, uh, has been redefined for a long time. It just, the, the redefinition that was kind of the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back was 2015. But there's been a lot of redefinition all the way up until 2015. 
I, I put that quote up there to say, I, I think as people who are in the church, we need to be careful to start with our own sense of not just a specific issue, but our own sense of what it means for us to be the church, be a redeeming force in the culture. Uh, that the, the goal of almost everybody in the church is not that we would live in a theocracy and that the law of the Bible would be the law of the land, but that the church would operate under the reign of Jesus, that's the kingdom of God language, and that we would be light in darkness. And if we are consistently giving away our light, and then at the very last minute, like trying to light a match because tra the trans movement is starting to run away with the world, uh, we've, we've missed what it means to be the church. And so I would, I, I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be engaging this. In fact, I, we're doing the class because I think we should engage this. But I think we should engage the broader move of the redemption of culture in a, a, a much more fully orbed way than simply looking at sexuality and gender and saying we need to fix this thing. Um, that there's a lot of stuff that's broken in our world and the church unfortunately is in the middle of a lot of it, in the midst of the brokenness and um, we, we need to have a sense of humility with that and we need to have a sense of passion that says the, the God who has restored me is bringing restoration to the world around me and that's that's what we're called into. That's the thing that we need to step into. So as we're dealing with these topics, that idea of restoration needs to be something that's kind of uh, continually bubbling up within us. All right, so um, we're going to move to questions. Uh, Tim is going to move around with a mic in just a moment, but I'm going to start with a question that was emailed, and then we'll uh, go from there. So the question that was emailed was this. How far can we go in loving and honoring transgender people without compromising the truth that Jesus calls us to declare through our lives and actions. For instance, would Jesus have changed people's pronouns? That was that conversation. When does our love get in the way of people actually hearing truth? That's kind of the core question. When does our love for people get in the way of people actually hearing truth? It's a, it's a really, really great question, and I do think the, the, that that question is answered by Jesus multiple times through the scriptures. So what Jesus constantly did was love people where they were and immediately, lovingly, point them towards where they should be. So uh, Jesus encountering the woman at the well in John chapter 4, uh, he, he doesn't affirm anything within her lifestyle, but he shows her a level of love that she's never experienced before from a man, a different, a different kind of love. And in showing her that kind of love, he was then able to speak lovingly to her in a way that redirected her, so much so that, that, that as she went, it was kind of a go and sin no more kind of thing. That was coming out of the, uh, the woman caught in adultery, which is another one of those circumstances. But there's this, this sense in which Jesus is encountering people where they are, loving them where they are, and yet immediately pointing them towards what's true, but not in a way that's judgmental, but in a way that is... Uh, is loving them and nurturing them. The big challenge we have with specifically sexuality and gender is that culturally, we've taken sexuality and gender and made them identity, not um, in one instance, a, a way of attraction or a, a way of expressing our sexuality, another instance, a way of feeling or expressing our gender. Uh, instead of them being surface level things, they become very deep things. 
So that's where, um, if you were with us in October, we talked about that phrase, hate the sin, love the sinner. And the big problem with hate the sin, love the sinner is if the sinner, which is all of us, by the way, uh, feels that our sin is our identity, then hating the sin becomes an identity statement that cannot be extricated from the person. And so it's a, it, that, that kind of binary statement that says, well, I, I hate this thing that is so deeply a part of you uh, cannot ex- coexist with, but I really love you. And, it, and that's what's fascinating. You never see that in Jesus' life. In Jesus' life, you see him loving people exactly where they are, and when he, when he points them towards truth, when he points them towards morality, what's, what's actually true, that they never take offense at him as though he's, um, a, as though he's critiquing them at, at an identity level. They either receive it as that's what I should do because the loving person, this, this incredible man who loved me where I was, pointed me that direction. Or like the rich young ruler, he walks away sad. He, he doesn't feel, it seems, he doesn't feel that he's been cut down by Jesus, abused by Jesus, like, like yelled at by Jesus. He just feels like, yeah, I guess that's true. That's actually, that is actually the way it works. One of the things that Jesus did over and over again is he, he stated reality. Instead of saying, do this, he just basically said, like, this is the way life is. This is the way it works. So um, if you are going to be, um, if you're going to hoard your money, uh, it's going to be hard for you to go to heaven. That's the way it works. If, uh, if you have uh, treasure that is going to, that, that is uh, from this world, with this world, it's going to rot and it's going to go away. That's just, he, he made statements of fact. He didn't critique people. He, crea- he just made statements of fact. And so I think there's a way for us to do that. Uh, th- I, I think if you are struggling with where that line is, I would say read the Gospels a lot. Like just read them over and over again and try to immerse yourself in the way that Jesus responded to people. Um, I, because we read the Gospels so quickly and they, they've become familiar we miss some of the ways that Jesus responded to people. I mean, he was brilliant in the way that he engaged people. And while you and I are probably not going to be quite that brilliant, um, soaking in that will help us to start to respond in that, that kind of way. All right, so Tim has a microphone. I'm very scared, but we're going to try it. So if anybody has questions, let's take it away. Just throw your hand up, and Tim will jump in. And I didn't look. I might have... Uh, Oh my, I have, my uh, phone was doing crazy things. Oh, I have, a, I have a question. So I'll start with a question, and then we'll go to the next one. Thank you. Uh, some years ago, some traditional slash mainline Christian churches were promoting Mother God in lieu of or with Father God in a description of the Godhead. Uh, what was driving this foreign concept? Uh, great question, interesting question. Um, so what was driving the concept is, uh, well... I, I don't know that I can speak to other people's motivation. What I think was driving the concept is a healthy perspective of us seeing God in his fullness. And even though the scriptures use Father and Him in very clear ways, I mean, these are clearly gendered pronouns that are being used for God uh, in any language that the language was written in and in our language, these are clearly gendered pronouns. There is a concept of Him and Father that in so we talked about the way that the church has, and I would argue, unnecessarily narrowed stereotypes. Um, as 
he, Father God, starts to fall within those unnecessarily narrowed stereotypes. He no longer is fully the God of the Bible. And so I, if I'm going to paint it in the best way possible, I would say that language of, of Mother God and Father God was intended to broaden our view and to break down the stereotypes that we see of masculinity and femininity as it relates to the Godhead. God is clearly not gendered. And so even though he has gendered pronouns, God is not a man. In fact, the Bible says that really clearly. God is not a man. So we, we have to be really careful in the way that we express God. That said, the um, divinely inspired scriptures use father and use him and do not use mother and her. And so therefore, I think our best bet is to redefine our stereotypes rather than redefining the way we talk about God. So that would be my two cents on that. All right. I'm not going to say names when I, so I'll just point at people. So therefore, not. I, I'm on record, though, so all of you should have to be on record, too. I'm just kidding. It's fine. I'll just point at people. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I read an article recently that claimed that activists in the transgender slash gay community appear to be targeting Christian churches by joining their fellowship without revealing their identity and then months later coming out and demanding membership. The article posed the concern that churches could be sued if they refused membership, and even if they were successful in defending their case, the church could be exposed to very high legal fees to do so, and that would you know, inherently you know, cause difficulties with missions and expenses of the church. Um, while I understand the desire to protect the church from sabotage, it seems like there's a risk of failing to minister to people in need of salvation regardless of their orientation if we adopt such a defensive stance. How do we best address both concerns? See, I said they're going to be easy questions. No big deal. <laughs> Come on, really. Thank you. Um, so, uh, so let me take it from a couple perspectives. First of all, um, that's not a, um, a one-off thing. That is something that is happening in a variety of different places. It, it's a very, very real thing. Um, the, the idea of legal costs and legal defense is, uh, is something. I, I, I don't want to say that that doesn't mean anything. The, the much bigger issue is that the, those kinds of things are incredibly divisive to the church as a whole. So I'm, I would be less concerned about the fact that your clients would be bankrupt and far more concerned about the fact that your clients would be splintered. And I think that's uh, the, the bigger issue. God's got enough money. I'm not too worried about that. But I do think that idea of maintaining the unity spirit and the bond of peace is a really core issue that we're called into. Um, so I, how, do we, how do we walk the line? First, I think um, we, we, we cannot in any circumstances, respond to people in fear of what may happen. God does not ever call us to respond in fear. So um, if any variety of people who could be opposed to the Christian message walked in, my, my response, to the extent that I have a sense of fear rise up within me, I, I'm, I can know for certain that's not of the Spirit. And so my engagement of people can't be based on they might do something or something might happen. There should be wisdom. And so wisdom comes in with, for instance, um, I, 
I was just t- telling somebody the other day who um, uh, pastors a non-denominational independent church, and I just said to them, like, bless you, brother. I, I could not do that. Like, I would not, I would not be willing nor able to do that because the, the need of being under authority and having a larger organization that can help guide us through these kinds of things is really key. So for us in the Christian Missionary Alliance, um, one of the things that we did right after the Obergefell uh, decision was we, uh, all, every single Alliance church in the country, all, every single one of them passed a motion through their governing board that very specifically defined a a variety of different lifestyle things that's consistent across every single church in America. And the reason we did that is for that specific thing. So the the legal defense to a place like York Alliance, while certainly could escalate and go crazy like any court case can, is pretty, um, it's pretty clear cut. And that's because a whole team of lawyers immediately after Obergefell said, we better, we better figure this out. <laughs> and so they did and walked, walked through a whole bunch of different language. We have all the language on, uh, on file. I, I say that as part of a denomination because um, I'm just saying, I mean, we have, we have a great church. I love you all. We have incredibly talented people. There's all kinds of stuff going on here that's really, really great. Um, that, that level of um, legal expertise doesn't just show up at every single independent church. Like uh, that's where I'm so thankful to have a denomination who can uh, sift through this and try to to help us with this. And so that I, I think you have to be wise. I think um, the the first step is doing everything that you can do to protect yourself from a legal perspective. Don't be foolish. Um, but having been wise, then I think you love people exactly where they are, and uh, I. I would always rather put ourselves in a position of being taken advantage of than put ourselves in a position of sheltering ourselves from people who need the gospel. So that, it's a complicated question, but that's, uh, that's the best I got for you. And I'm thankful that you sent me the article a little bit earlier, so I had a little bit of chance to process. That was really good. Thank you. What else? What questions do you have? Be brave enough to throw it out, please. Um, I don't know. This is not a fully formed question in my own mind. <laughs> no <laughs> also, problem. I have mom brain, so no, it's that all good. doesn't make any sense. Um, I was just thinking about you know people I've encountered, not on this specific issue, but just of homosexuality, mm-hmm. um, where they people who have grown up in church, who are knowledgeable of the Bible, who have maybe had experiences with religion in mm-hmm. a bad way, you know, people being judgmental, people yeah. being cruel and in the name of God, really, um, who want to define, say, well, God is love. Therefore, love accepts and loves as you are. Mm -hmm. And all this other religious stuff is just religious stuff. And Jesus was a rebel and he rejected religion and he accepted the people who were outcasts of society. And this issue wasn't an issue in his time. But if he was here now, Mm -hmm. he would be accepting. Right of these people as they are and not expect them to change. Like Mm -hmm. what would be a way without, I mean, in thinking through it, thinking you would almost have to get into like deep theological things to explain that to somebody, but how would you in a shorter way engage with a person saying that? 
Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. Um, I, I think the, there, there's two phrases that in that argument get joined together that the church has to separate, and that is accept and love people where they are and not ask them to change. And, and I, w I would simply say, Jesus loves and accepts everybody exactly where they are, and there's nobody he doesn't ask to change. He's asking everybody to change. Like, you, you can't find an example of a person that Jesus encounters, and he's like, no, you're, real, you're great where you are. Like, nobody is like that. So everybody's being asked to change. The question comes into, that. what's underneath the question, because I've had a lot of these dialogues, the, the, the next thing is, yeah, but you're not being asked to change who you are. And so that, the, the core becomes the identity thing versus the action thing. And uh, helping people separate their, their beliefs and their actions, their desires, their loves from their identity is, is really, really tricky. And so that's, that's the piece where it gets to be a lot more challenging. And so um, what, what I basically just say to people is um, I, I, would, I would argue that Jesus is not asking anybody to change first. He's asking them to come and be loved by him first. And then, uh, according to his spirit, he will tell you. I, I have a story that I tell all the time of a guy who came to faith who, I, I mean, it's hard to imagine somebody whose life was more like, uh, it was more sinful in various areas than, I mean, this guy was sinning in like ways that I was, it was more creative than I could come up with. Like, I was like, man, that's not even listed in the list of sins. Like, man, you just like you're adding stuff. Like, it's crazy. And he had this radical experience of, of, of encountering Jesus, comes in, I'm talking to him in the lobby. I had known him before um, and knew that he was <laughs> not at all following Jesus and had this incredible encounter with Jesus, and he wants to have lunch with me, and we sit down and talk, and, he's, and he says, and he came out of a, a pretty legalistic church background and had moved away from that, and he said, like, like well, I know all this stuff. Like, I gotta, I gotta start to, like, I, I gotta stop living with my girlfriend, and I gotta stop doing drugs, and I gotta stop, and just, he did the list of all the sins that were creative, you know, all of them, and, and I just said, like, look, I would strongly encourage you, as, as of two days ago now, your pastor, to, to not try to do all that. Like, don't change those things. What I would encourage you to do is read the Bible and pray and get in community with people who can love you and walk with you and then start to learn to listen to the Spirit. Your community can help you listen to the Spirit. And then, as the Spirit tells you what he wants to work on next, work on that. Because I guarantee you, if you change all that stuff right now in your flesh, you're gonna follow Jesus for about another two days and you're done. Because you can't, you can't. Like, Jesus, Jesus doesn't expect you to change all that right now. Jesus loves you right where you are and he's gonna change you one thing at a time. And so as it relates to this issue, I would say um, if, we love, if, if we learn to love people where they are, create a space of acceptance, and then to the extent that they're willing to pursue Jesus, pursue Jesus alongside of them, we can trust the Holy Spirit to do that work. It becomes a lot more complicated when there are people who are not interested in following Jesus that we're still called to love because those people are not gonna have power to change anyways nor motivation to change and so then there's a, a different journey that we have to walk through. But for people who have a background in faith and are, would say, Jesus loves me, and isn't asking me to change, I would simply say Jesus loves you and is asking all of us to change.
that's the best I got on that one. Thank you. I'm going to summarize one section of a long text message I got because I think it's a really helpful conversation. Um, and uh, that, that person who if, uh, would like to go on record, they're welcome to clarify if they'd like. Um, the, basically, the question is, uh, the majority of this class and the majority of the perspective, both in sexuality and in gender, have been pressing into the idea of personal one-to-one -one relationships, get to know people, love people, walk with people. And from that perspective... Like, I, I think we're all generally pretty agreed on that. Like, we should, like, get to know people, love people where they are, and walk with them. Like, that's totally fine. But there is this other kind of big um, uh, political movement that's happening in the world, and um, there's a, a lobby that's kind of pushing a certain way of thinking. And how do we respond to that in a way that's at the macro level, not the micro love people level? Like the micro-love people level, we're on the same page. Like we're, we, should, we should love people. But how do you handle the bigger picture thing? And, um, and specifically, like it feels as though I'm not really talking to that was the, the inference. And, and that's probably true. And let me explain why that's true. Um, the, the first thing I would say is, I, I, based on my experience with the majority of people at a church like York Alliance, so I would say our church absolutely and other churches that have the same rough kind of makeup as, as York Alliance. Most people who are like us, whatever that means, don't even know in a real way, like real, like sit down and have dinner kind of way, one person who is a practicing homosexual or struggling with homosexuality, or one person who is actively struggling with gender dysphoria. Now, certainly that's not true of everybody. There's lots of you who would say, oh, I know a lot of people like that. My, my world puts me in contact with tons of people like that. Um, and for those people, the needs are a little bit different. The reason I push really hard on the relational piece is because, by and large, the, where the church has erred in these areas is making sexuality and gender specifically into a platform issue that we are arguing about the topic rather than engaging people. And so I'm gonna always push back to people, get to know real people, get to know their stories, walk with them and love them. However, let me speak to the other side. Um, there is a point at which all followers of Jesus need to draw a firm, hard line on like, I, I can't go this far. And that line, I think, has some, um, I, I'll, I'll call it kind of a, either a really thick black line or a lot of real thin lines. I don't think it's in the same place for everybody. I think that as, our, uh, as we wrestle with the scriptures based on our conscience, there's a line that's distinct, but I think that there's a point at which, for all of us, we just have to say, I, I can't go there. I'm not willing to go there. And so I would say, one, as people who are living in a society that's moving rapidly away from Jesus, we need to know where that line is, and we need to know... Um, there will be risk with holding that line. Part of, uh, I'll just use me as a personal example. Um, I will have now, by tomorrow or Friday, whenever they come out, I will have four weeks of teaching on gender 
um, that has my name tied to it out into the world on the interwebs. And there could be a whole lot of blowback from that. I have no idea how that's going to work. We'll see how that goes. Um, and, and that's just, that's part, but for me, I'm saying, like, look, this is what it means for us to engage these topics. This is what it means for the church to be the church. The church has to figure out, this is a real thing in the world around us, and putting our head in the sand doesn't help anything. So we have to start to engage this. We have to start to figure it out. There's a line like that for everybody where you say, like, I, I'm, I can't go any further than this. Just like there are a small percentage of people who are experiencing transgenderism and are also activists who are trying to change policy and make the world different, I would absolutely affirm there should be a, a roughly an equal percentage of Christians who are doing the same thing. I don't think every Christian is called to change policy. I don't think every Christian needs to be out uh, creating a, a, a new platform that pushes back against the, the platform that's coming from the other direction. I do think some people should do that. I think there needs to be really intelligent, engaged people who are engaging the culture from a socio-political perspective. I think that it's incredibly dangerous when that's removed from relationship. So I would say to all of those people, and you should be in relationship with the people that are the subject of the things that you're pushing. So if, you're, if your deal is transgender laws or, or, or uh, homosexual, uh, homosexuality laws in the homosexual lobby, be in relationship with people who are transgender and who are homosexual as you're working on that lobby. I'd say the same thing. I just had a conversation with somebody about the pro-life and pro-choice movement. Like if you're, if you're pro-life and you're willing to politic pro-life, you should be in relationship with unwed teenage moms who are trying to figure out what to do with their babies. Like that's, that's, that has to be there. You can't separate one from the other. And that same thing has to be true of, of this area. So I think, yes, I think people need to be, uh, there, there should be lines that are being fought for politically from a, um, a conservative basis. That's totally, that's totally fine, uh, even though I wouldn't necessarily uh, label a, a Christian as a conservative or a, a, a liberal. I think um, in this instance, from a socially conservative perspective, there are Actually, we're so far over into the liberal side, I'm not even sure that the proper laws are, I think the proper laws could actually be labeled liberal and they would actually be way more conservative than they are right now. So uh, some of the stuff has gone so far off the deep end, I think it's appropriate for Christians to step into that and to engage it from a political perspective. That's totally fine. The, the danger is when it's removed from relationship. And so that's why I'm trying to teach it from a perspective of get to know real people, love them. Transformation happens on a one-to-one -one basis. Transformation never happens at a corporate basis. So you're, you're, there, there will be no law that will change the hearts of transgender people. There will be no law that will, uh, that will fix the crisis of sexuality that America has emerged into in the last two decades. Like it's, the, the, that's, Will laws help? Sure, they'll be part of the bigger picture. But transformation is going to happen person by person by person, which is why in the midst of all of this, like I hope part of what you're hearing underneath all of this is the need to pray for the people around us, to pray for revival, pray that God would come and do work. That's, that's really what, what needs to happen. So I'm not sure I stated that question. That, that question was, it wasn't even a question. That was a statement in the midst of a really long statement that needs to be part of a longer conversation. But I thought it was a really important one and I think a really uh, helpful distinction because I absolutely, I will freely admit, um, as I teach this, lean into the individual one-to-one -one kind of thing. Um, 
because I think most Christians are missing it, honestly. I think most of us don't have those relationships, and so I'm constantly pushing back. Thank you. Just to speak a little bit to the education system. Yes, um, please do. I don't know, and I know you've touched on it a little bit, but that um, I don't think people are fully aware how pervasive kind of like the targeting of children is in public schools. And um, with regard to groups that advertise on the announcements, that put flyers up, that have professional development sessions targeted toward the teachers and are told to use their preferred pronouns, et cetera. And then the um, teachers no longer, or teachers being considered in loco parentis, and therefore we must shoulder the burden of, as you've said, without um, the knowledge of parents. And we're being told to keep things from parents. Um, there is that targeting going on, and I don't, I'm not sure that everybody's quite aware of it, and therefore I think another thing is that perhaps because of schooling and the amount of transgender students, um, I believe that kids in public schools are having much more um, rubbing shoulders with so many more students than maybe people realize, yep. and that families may actually know more children than you think. Yeah. And so you might know transgender people. Mm -hmm. And um, your children certainly know if they're Absolutely. grades like if 3 through school. 12, you yeah. definitely know. Absolutely. So my question is, is for Christian families, especially those of us who are educators, yeah. we're not sure what the line is of when we continue. So it's two things. Mm -hmm. How far do we affirm lest we worry about a millstone tied around my neck yeah. to affirm how is that different from offering a, bin a binge to an alcoholic yep. or telling a bully make you're fat and you need to bin to mm -hmm. purge? Yeah. How far do we go before we say, I quit, or realize I can't affirm this and I'm going to lose my job? Or two, what then do we do to, how do we continue to train up our children for those of us, maybe some who don't have the opportunity to homeschool, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that the right choice? Are you shielding your your whole family from society and sure. not being in the world? Yeah. Creating a separate Christian, or are you rightfully protecting your children? And what do those of us do who are keeping our children in the system, who are part Absolutely. of a system that yeah. is creating copycats? Yeah. 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 Um, like I said, it's going to be easy questions tonight. I was sure of it. So, um, yeah. So uh, the, the first question, I think, is... Um, very difficult in practice, relatively easy for me to answer sitting up here as a pastor, but a, a way more difficult in practice, which is that, um, that there, there is a line of conscience that every individual person has to, has to navigate, and that line basically crosses over the exact thing that you said, the millstone concept. It's like when, when I cross over as an educator affirming something that will lead to destruction, then that's a pathway too far. The question is, and I think this is why I think it's a little bit of an individual measure of conscience, I think to the extent every teacher's situation is different, every administration is different in the way that they're handling and enforcing it, um, and even within the same administration, different 
pods of teachers handle it in different ways. Uh, so every situation is a little different there, and every teacher has a different level of creativity in the way that they engage it and ways that they figure out how to engage it or yeah it, or work around and all the different uh, all the different things. And so there I think there's a line that's in there where every individual person I I I am my default is that Christians should as much as possible stay in the system. And so as much as that's possible, I think Christians should do that. But I think there is a line and um in different different districts and different places at different moments, that line I think will get to be relatively clear. The challenge with that, of course, is that's a that's somebody's livelihood. That's a that's a calling. I mean, there's all teaching is not just like you're making money. I mean, it's also like this is what I'm called to do. And uh, most teachers could go make a lot more money somewhere else. <laughs> they just are called into this specific role. And so. Um, it's like I said. It's easier to say from up here than it is to do it. Um, but I, I think that line comes into exactly what you referenced: the, the when am I leading somebody down a path of destruction because I'm just um, saying what I've been told to say? And um, and uh, I do think that there's opportunity in some situations. That, again, every teaching situation is a little bit different. Some opportunity to build real relationship with kids who are dealing with transgenderism in a way that can allow, um, uh, even from a secular relationship perspective that's not bringing, in, bringing Jesus into the conversation, that can show love and redemption to kids. But it depends on the person, it depends on the situation, and they're all a little bit different. Um, as it relates to our kids, Christian kids, or uh, kids who are growing up in the church, part of your kids, whatever, that's it's really really tricky. Um, I, there is a strong peer push that will happen with all kids in the public school setting. It's just that's the way that it is. Um, it, even though we we homeschool, I'm I would not say that homeschooling is the way out of it. In fact, I would say I would say it this way: if the way that you homeschool doesn't allow it means that your kids are not exposed to any of this you're pro I, I would say you're not doing it right like homeschooling the goal of homeschooling is not to shelter kids from the world around them it should be to give them a hopefully a good education and a foundation that would allow them to deal with the things in the world around them so um so our, you know our perspective would be like you know ethan spent a, a year working at starbucks he found out all kinds of really interesting things you know and and if you don't know what those things are, go to Starbucks and see if you can figure out who your barista is. And it's, it's fascinating. So, um, so yeah, I mean, our, our goal would be to, um, I, I would say from a pastoral perspective, if somebody chooses to homeschool, I think that's great, but don't do it to shelter your kids. That's not the reason to do it. Um, I, would, I would actually argue um, Christian school, uh, has the same kind of perspective, and so I would say the same thing. Like, great, send your kids to Christian school. I have no issue with that. But don't do it to shelter them. Do it to give them a foundation and figure out ways to expose them to the world around them. I, I think public school is great. I have no, op my opposition to public school is that I work on Sundays, and when kids have to go to school Monday through Friday, I don't ever get to see my kids. So I, for us, it just kind of, the schedule works out better. Um, but I, I think public school is great. I have no opposition to that as a as an entity. I think that's actually a really good. That I to me that would be the default for 
Christian parents. But um, this, this specific issue in the last couple of years has um, made it a lot more complex. Uh, I would say talk about, if, if your kids are in public school, I, it's true anyways, but if your kids are in public school, talk about sex and gender early. Um, start conversations really early on. Uh, give them a solid foundation and make your home a place where they can be who they are. And so if that is a, uh, a, a born female who feels like she wants to look like and dress like a boy or a born boy who likes to do lots of really feminine things, figure out ways to be able to help them see that as normalized for their gender, not a cross-gender thing. So try to break down those stereotypes any way that you can. Like try to love, love that girl who's got short hair and baggy t-shirts and just love, love her towards Jesus affirming who she is. Love that boy who's, you know, wearing very dainty clothes and likes to dance and sing or whatever the thing is, you know, uh, and uh, affirm him as a man who is doing all of that stuff. That's, uh, there is no silver bullet. So there's no like, um, if you just do this, your kids will be fine. Like, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Um, the other thing that I think can be really, really helpful is, um, and I promise I'm not trying to make uh, any kind of a, um, a commercial for any kind of programs at York Alliance or anything like that, but get, get your kids into intergenerational community early and as deeply as you can. They need other voices. They need other people who are different than you as their parents. They need people who can invest in them and love them and walk with them. And, and if their exposure to community is only ever peer-based, there are significant inherent problems with that. And so they need to have exposure to intergenerational community. They should have friends, people they would call friends, who are 10 to 15 to 20 to 30 years older than them that are walking with them and investing in them. Uh, and so that, that can absolutely happen through a community group, but that can happen through a thousand other ways too. The point is not say like you gotta do a community group, but figure out a way for that to happen. Um, that's, that's part of the foundation. If, if I affirm my kid where he is or she is, that's one thing. If somebody else who's not their parent, who's part of their life, affirms them as they are, as they try to figure out their gender and as they try to figure out their sexuality and as they try to walk through all this stuff and is able to affirm them as they're created by God, that has so much more power than just me. Now, I want to be careful to say I, as their parent, do still have the most power in that. If I'm not affirming them, that will be, no amount of other affirmation is going to be enough. And so I need to be part, a key part of that, but I'm not enough. It needs to be this plus, my, my affirmation plus. I wish there was a silver bullet for it. It's really, really tough. It is, you're exactly right. The, um, the targeting is the right word. Um, there are very aggressive movements towards particularly gender, but, but really gender and sexuality in a kind of a broad sense, uh, really aggressive. Uh, really, the aggressive movement is don't be normal. Be anything other than a cisgender heterosexual, anything else would be fine. And so there's this like massive push towards something other than that. And we have to learn to do our best to love our kids where they are and affirm 
the uniqueness of who they are, where they are, that they don't have to be transgender or homosexual to be unique. They can be, um, it's, it's funny because as the movement continues to gain steam, uh, like anything else, it's like the only, un the real rebellious thing to be, if you want to be like real punk rock, be a cisgender heterosexual, like man, that's just like, that's just in the face of the man, right? Like that's the way to go. Um, and so it, it will ultimately get there. I mean, that's going to end up to be the cool thing. That's the way it works. But um, yeah, as we walk through it, it's really, it's, it's, it's a real, real challenge. And I think you're right to say, uh, kind of to alert, like, hey, you may not know this, but it is a major push within, within the school systems. And yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, please. Um, mine's kind of specific, but it can also be like more generalized. Okay. I have a sister who is in a same-sex marriage and had yeah. a baby, mm -hmm. and trying to help her walk through a trans, like with the Holy Spirit, and hmm. kind of through that, a tra that comes with divorce. So, like, wh how does oh, wow. that push against if they're already married, and you're kind of looking at that way? Mm -hmm. There's two things there that is kind of going against everything. Yeah. So, is is has she come to faith? Or was was she a Christian? Is she a Christian? Uh, we not grew yet? up in a church, but I don't think she ever really truly. Okay, so she would not God. identify herself as a Christian right now. No. Okay. Okay. So um, yeah, it's really it's really really tricky. I remember um, we had a uh, we had a lesbian couple that was here with kids for a while for um, a significant amount of time, maybe a, a couple years, and they they were great parents, and they had a great family. And it was really hard to just really wrestle through the idea that what I'm really praying for is that that family wouldn't exist as it is right now. And it's a, it's a tough thing. It's tough to get your head around. Um, so a couple things. Um, one is that the, when a uh, homosexual person, man or woman, who is in a homosexual marriage comes to faith, their movement away from their homosexuality and away from their homosexual marriage does not necessi necessitate them moving away from their family. And so they can, there are ways, particularly if, if both partners come to faith at the same time, there can be a really beautiful way that they together raise children as people who are pursuing Jesus in a life of celibacy or through uh, even through heterosexual marriage to, to new partners. There, there are ways, beautiful ways that sometimes God writes that story. Um, that's the way I've taken to pray. It doesn't happen much, but it can be a really beautiful thing. Um, mu much more often, it becomes messy for the kids that are going through it. And so, um, yeah, you, you, I would say you pray and you ask God to do a transforming work and then as God starts to do that process, you pray for great wisdom as to how other creative ways that your maybe larger family can be family for them, how other neighbors and friends can be family for them. Um, the, it's tough for us to... Uh, there's so, so, so many things I need to say that I need to say carefully, so I'm just trying to say it so I'm communicating the right thing. Um, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not even trying to tiptoe around landmines as much as like I want to communicate what I'm actually trying to communicate. What, what, what I want to communicate is we, we have 
idolized the, the perfect family as though that is a version of the Godhead, and it's not. And so the, the idea of a family struggling because people are seeking to follow after Jesus with passion it is actually not the end of the world. We just live in a cultural construct where that feels like it's the end of the world. It feels like it's actually worth denying Jesus for a season in order to have a better family. And it's actually not worth it. But we live in a world that has moved that way, largely because of lots of Christian lobbies, honestly. I mean, the, Christianity, the, the church has done that as much as the, the world has. And so for a family to break down and for children to have to wrestle with the brokenness of a same-sex marriage breaking apart, that's never, that's never good, that's never to be celebrated but it's not irredeemable and it's not the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is eternity apart from Jesus. So the, the better case scenario is eternity with Jesus and a big mess that we have to try to work our way through. And so I, I would not cease praying, <laughs> keep pushing into it and just recognize, yeah, it could get messy. It, it could, it's tough, that's a tough situation. Uh, I, there's a lot of things been going through my mind as I imagine. Hey, me too. We're even. Yeah. <laughs> everybody here on the, on this whole subject. Um, I just wanted to bring out um, that I think that personally that we are facing with all of the things that are going on, not just the mm-hmm. the uh, the transgender movement and yeah. everything, you know, with with wokeness and you know all the stuff that's going on. Um, that it's it's a it's an Ephesians six type battle right now. I think uh, we are facing it, it's a lot of an enemy. There's an enemy that is really trying to uh, totally disrupt this world, uh, mm-hmm. whether it be in this country or not. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing is that um, I I was just thinking of Second Chronicles seven fourteen. You know that. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to really just get on our knees and pray mm-hmm. and pray not for things that we want to see happen necessarily. But I think we're, as a church, we're, we're thinking our God isn't great enough to handle it. We need yeah. to pray his will be done. Yeah. Yeah. And I think his will needs, we need to, we need to address it from that, that, that aspect. Uh, this comment, I, I feel that from a, <clears throat> Uh, a grassroots movement is going on in the country. I don't want, we don't want to definitely do not want to alienate. We need to love people that, that see uh, sexuality in a different way than we do, and we need to love them. But I think there's a grassroots movement moving, um, just like what has happened in Virginia, for example, uh, for the change in political, secular mm-hmm. But I think maybe even at a higher level, there's a spiritual uh, part to that going on down there where mm-hmm. it's at a grassroots where, where parents are going back to the, uh, going to the school board meetings yeah. and they're, you know, m- making themselves known and uh, m- making their, their point and, and doing it, not doing it, uh, not doing it uh, emphatically necessarily, but just being, uh, just, just, uh, giving their heart, speaking their heart, yeah. 
to the to the and I, I just I just think that it's it's really I, I was thinking another thing was about some years ago many years ago <laughs> dating myself but uh, we had the promise keepers movement for men mm -hmm. in this country and I went to that in Washington and I have never been so amazed at seeing almost a million men hey. on their faces and on their knees praying for yeah. God and there mm -hmm. was a change it was it was a, it was a uh, it was an actual um, change that we I think this country needs yeah. and we need to lead the world in yeah. that regard. So yeah, lots of lots of good stuff there. I'm not sure there was a question, but there was lots of good statements. Um I would say no, no, you're good. You're good. No, I was, I was just saying I think you made a lot of statements. I don't think you ask any questions, so I don't want to respond unnecessarily. I would simply say um, the the Spirit of God is always working among his people. And so um, sometimes you see it in broad ways, and sometimes you see that work in much smaller ways. But the Spirit of God is always working among his people. And so um, our we should be seeking to embody love and grace and truth and justice all both together and uh, unfortunately most of the time we tend to err on one side or the other and that's the challenge that's what we're trying to talk through how do we how do we walk the line so um we're wrapping up does anybody have any other question that's like burning on your heart that you want to you want to ask it's your chance i'm not talking about this anymore after today no i'm totally kidding um, thanks, thanks for journeying through this. It's, uh, it's difficult stuff. Um, I, I want to just reiterate what was, I, I think I don't remember, a couple weeks ago, I talked about the idea that you can, you can easily come away from these conversations feeling uh, like this heavy weight, this like, uh, like the world is so messed up and we're so broken and every, everything's hopeless. And um, wh what what Dave said there at the end, I think, is really, really important. Je Jesus is working, and um, we we know that both eternal victory and the restoration of the world around us—it's all all part of the work that we're called into. That doesn't mean it'll be easy, but we, we don't have to be afraid. Uh, we don't have to be uh, feel defeated. Um, there's absolutely there's a strong enemy, and there's a strong power that's going to push against us that will constantly push against us. But um, we we can press into the victory that we have in Christ and we can seek to love people. You know, I, I, one of the most profound things to me about that Red Sea story that we looked at this Sunday is that um, if God destroys the enemies, I don't have to fight the enemies. I can love the enemies because God can handle it. I don't have to, I don't have to fight them. I can simply love people and hold the line and then recognize God, God can handle the battle. And so he... He will. I don't know what that's going to look like, and that may have all kinds of wide-reaching effects. I mean, it's not looking good right this very minute for the way the culture is moving, but God's bigger than that. And honestly, for me to pretend like I can control it's just going to make me a ball of stress and not going to help me out anyway, because I actually can't. So <laughs> for us, to, that's part of the beauty of Sabbath. Pause, breathe, and let God make the world spin, because he's better at it than you. So let me pray for us and uh, all these things, and we'll go from here. Jesus, um, we've said a lot. Um, I've sought as best I can to both present and answer uh, in accordance with your word and uh, according to your spirit. So God, where there have been things in any of these weeks that have been outside of where you are teaching us and leading us, would you just 
uh, wipe them away from our memories and from our hearts? Would you help us to press into the things that are truly you? And God, would you help us to be people who are ministers of reconciliation, who are bringing peace and, and, and beauty and justice into the world around us? God, make us people who are willing to boldly step forward to pronounce your name and your goodness in a way that loves people and, and points them back to you. So God, give us, um, give us Jesus' responses to people. Help us to, in subversive and beautiful and loving ways, respond to the people around us as we journey through this crazy world. God, um, we're grateful for you as our anchor. We place our feet on the rock, and we recognize that you alone are Lord. And so God, lead us out from here. Help us to reflect you to the world around us. Thank you for each of these brothers and sisters. Go with them. Go with us in Jesus' name. Amen.